What is good? Strange little word, good. We use it a lot. You use that word a lot. I do not think it means what you think it means. Good for you, we say. We talk about a good luck charm. Good night, dear, we say to our loved ones. When there's a home run, good night, Irene. Hello, Irene. We miss you. <laughs> it's a good deal, sure enough. Good Friday. Good Friday. Good times. Ain't we lucky we got them? Good times. Extra points for that cultural reference. Good to go, we say. How you doing? I'm good to go. Just a good old boys, never meaning no harm. Beats all you ever saw. Been in trouble with the law since the day they was born. Good. What does good mean? As we open up God's word, we're looking at Psalm 73. Now, maybe you think this psalm is right in the middle of the book of Psalms. There's 150 psalms in Psalm 73, smack dab in the middle. But Psalm 73, in its original languages, was actually five collections of psalms that we have. And Psalm 73 was the first psalm of the third collection of books. The third book of Psalms starts off with Psalm 73. Psalm 73, verse 1, is actually the opening line to a book. And here's what it says. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. You see, the psalmist plants a flag in the ground flies a banner over his heart, proclaims a truth about God that remains constant and sure and true in all times, in all places, for all people. Surely God is good. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But the psalmist doesn't stay there. He, he proceeds with this, he proclaims this truth, and then he proceeds to dismantle it. Thesis antithesis. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. In these two short verses, the psalmist exposes the paradox, uncovers the absurdity, reveals the contradiction, displays the puzzle, unmasks the oxymoron, the mystery of this life. God is good, but life is hard. God is good, but, but, but there's evil in the world. God is good, but people are bad. How do these two things coexist? How do we reconcile this paradox? God is good, but I am falling. How is that possible? God is good, but this world is caught in the middle of a pandemic, and all around us there seems to be chaos and violence and death and protests and all sorts of rioting. How is it that God is good when life is so hard? Such an important question. I've asked a whole bunch of different people, men and women of faith in our congregation, to wrestle with that question with you over the next few weeks, over the course of the summer. Each one of them working through one of these plaintive psalms written by this guy Asaph or the school of musicians that he founded after him. It's Psalm 73 to Psalm 83, and we're going to be looking at them over the course of our summer together. Each Sunday, we'll hear a different person, you'll hear from me more than once, wrestling with the quandary of desperate faith. How do we hold on to God? How do we hold on to our Heavenly Father when our world is in such chaos? Can we still proclaim that God is good in the middle of a hurricane? Can we hold on to his goodness even when we cannot see it? 
when all around our souls gives way? How do we ensure that God remains our hope and our stay? I think the goodness of God is the key to life. Verse 3 says, though, I envied the proud when I saw them prosper in spite of their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people do. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. How is it that God is good when he seems to allow some of the most wicked people on earth to prosper. One of my favorite artists is a guy named Ed Riojas. He's, he's painted a picture that I just love based on a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. And the rich man, the guy in the center of the picture, he sure seems to have it all. Everything's in place. He's full of pride and puffed up with self-importance, parading his own goodness before God, enjoying the accolades of other people. Look at me. Look at how righteous I am, he seems to be saying. You feel the weight of the problem, don't you? Maybe you look around you at some of the rich and powerful in our society, and you wonder to yourself, how is it that God is allowing them to prosper? That leader who seems so puffed up with his own importance, spending all of our money on a failed attempt at a UN seat. Why does he prosper, God? That other man, that, that orange man who seems so brash, who attacks other people, who seems so obsessed with his own self-importance. Why does he prosper, God? That news anchor who continuously peddles fake news and lies, whose arrogance is so off-putting. Why does he prosper, God? That billionaire who kills babies in third world countries. Why does he prosper? That false preacher with a $7 million airplane. That awful dictator who tortures dissenters in his own country. That fake doctor who makes false pronouncements that everybody seems to be listening to. That politician who acts like a queen, haughty and egotistical, condescending and supercilious. Why do they prosper, Lord, why, why do you allow it? This psalm could have been written yesterday about, about them, about us. They seem to live painless lives. They clothe themselves with cruelty. They boast against the very heavens, and yet so many people seem to be drinking their words. And we say, God, do you even know what's going on right now? Do you even see how is it that you are good when this world is so full of evil? I'm losing my footing, Lord. My faith seems to be slipping. I, I'm envious of the proud. I see them there prospering in spite of their goodness, God. Are you there? Are you good? 
Do you even care? Verse 13, did I keep myself pure for nothing? Did I keep my heart innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Verse 15, if I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. And so I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but oh, what a difficult task it is. You know, it somehow encourages my own poverty-stricken spirit to think that thousands of years ago, there was this tender-souled musician who was completely bewildered by the events occurring around him, just as baffled by the world he saw as I am by the one that I see. It somehow encourages me. Asaph was a young man in the courts of King David. His father, Berechiah, was appointed to be a keeper of the Ark of the Covenant under David. And for the first few years of his life, that's what Asaph saw as a young musician. He grew up in the court of David, and he saw the kingdom flourish, and he saw all the good things that were happening. And then, and then when Solomon came along and built the temple, what, how incredible that must have been for a musician serving in the temple courts. But then, as an old man, Asaph watched his entire country splinter and disintegrate, one side against the other, people fighting other people, grasping for power, trying to destroy each other, and all of these innocent people caught in the crossfire. This is what he witnessed. He saw this happen with his very own eyes, good men dying while evil men prospered. Like I say, Psalm 73 could have been written yesterday. And the psalms that follow this one are all in that same vein. They are all plaintive and, and desperate. Desperate people with a desperate faith living in desperate times. Does that sound familiar at all to you? The reality that I am slowly coming to terms with in my own life is, is this. It is that desperation is integral to my faith. Desperation is a part of my faith. Jesus says, blessed are you who hunger and who thirst after righteousness. Desperation. See, the morally upright person looks at this world and is rightfully anguished, rightfully distressed in his spirit, rightfully disheartened in her faith. Part of our creation in God's image is this um, sense of justice that God has poured into our, our lives. That's part of God's image in us. We love to see wrongs being righted. We love to see the good guys win at the end of the movies. We love to see the, the people who, who are oppressed become unoppressed. We, we want to see the oppressed vindicated. And we want to see the captives set free. And when that doesn't happen, our sense of justice is wounded and we, we become downcast and disillusioned and discouraged when we don't see justice. It breaks our spirits not to see justice. Are you good, God? The psalmist comes up with three conclusions, three things that he wants to hang on to in the middle of all of this, this quandary, this paradox that he's wrestling with. Conclusion number one is simply this. Justice may be delayed, but it is certain. It is coming. Verse 17, I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I, I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. 
Truly, you put them on a slippery path and you send them sliding over a cliff into destruction. Verse 19, in an instant they are destroyed. They are completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at their dreams when the morning comes. And you know, I I really think that's the best response to this question. In my past, I've had people ask that. If God is so good, then why is there wickedness in the world? And the answer to that question is that the sovereign God, the God of the universe, the the judge over all things, he has a perfect, unstoppable, unthwartable plan to deal with injustice one day. Maybe not today, but one day all rights will be wrong, all wrongs will be righted. One day all poverty will be ended. One day all the innocent will, will, will be set free. One day all the captives will be released. One day we will see God's justice prevail. One day. So that's the first conclusion that the psalmist hangs on to, is that this longing for justice that we have, it will be satisfied one day. God will right all wrongs one day. The second conclusion that the psalmist looks at is he says, in the meantime, I have to be so careful to guard my own heart. I am responsible to nurture my own faith. Verse 21, I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and so ignorant. I I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. And yet, verse 23, I, I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me in your counsel. You lead me to a glorious destiny. It's been an important part of my journey to realize and just continually remind myself that the only soul garden that I'm called to look after is my own. The only garden of the soul that I am supposed to weed, pull up weeds in, is my own. If other people want to hear my counsel, if they want to seek my thoughts, if they want my advice, then I, I try and give that. I try and be generous with that. I try and speak the truth in love. I, I try that. But at the end of the day, each one of us is responsible before God for the state of our own soul. And First Peter chapter 5, verse 7 and 9 reminds me that I can give all of my worries and my cares to God because I know this. I know that he cares about me. 1 Peter 5, 7 and 9 says, Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He's prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. I know when I was a young man, I had a friend who gave me a book. The book was called The Hidden Rift with God written by William Backus. It was a great book. It changed my life. The author argues that there's actually this huge inconsistency that happens in our lives when we feel like God has been unfair with us, and yet we refuse to talk to him about it. After all, our spirits reason to ourselves. God is perfect. He's never wrong. And so if I've got a problem with him, then it's my problem, and and I need to deal with it. God is is perfect, and everything that he does is is for my good. And so it would be a sin to be upset with him. I, I won't even admit that I'm angry with him. And yet, we're still upset with him. And so rather than simply talking to him about our problems, what we tend to do instead is we shut them up within ourselves and we actually stay quiet about them and then, and then we start to drift away from him. 
rather than bringing all of our cares and our worries to God, we start to walk away from him. Job doesn't do that. Job shakes his fist at the heavens and says, Lord, I need an answer. Why are you doing this to me? Like Job is frustrated with God. He's angry with God. And all of Job's friends are like, no, don't say that about God. And in the end, God is the one who calls Job the righteous one. Psalm 42 verse 8. King David's psalms are all about plaintiveness. They're all, King David is often admitting that he's confused and frustrated, even angry with God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. David complains to God over and over again in the psalms. David argues with God, and, and yet God calls David a man after his own heart. And Abraham argues with God over the destruction of Sodom. In in Genesis chapter 18, God shows up and Abraham feeds him a meal and they're walking together and Abraham starts to try and make this deal with God. When he he realizes that God is going to go destroy the city that Abraham's friend lives in, Lot, Abraham starts to make a deal with God. And and God actually, there's this really cool little uh, discussion that goes on as, as Abraham is trying to make this bargain with God and God allows him to. God doesn't say, oh, how dare you judge me for what I'm about to do and strike Abraham dead for impudence. No. He he listens. Come, let us reason together, God says. And then there's the mother of Jesus, Mary. In John chapter 2, she doesn't argue with her son, Jesus. (laughs) They're at a wedding. They're in public. You can't have a fight in front of everybody, right? So, So no, she just very, very quietly disobeys him like she just graciously and gently and quietly and righteously strong arms the son of God she just looks at the servants and she goes hey guys come here whatever he tells you to do just do it and she shoots Jesus a look and then she leaves and Jesus is like great I guess I'm turning water to wine thanks a lot mom it's just it's an awesome little passage of scripture and I don't think that your worries and your concerns are a threat to your God. I don't think he's going to throw a temper tantrum and run off and leave you just because you're confused and you're angry with him. I don't think that the God who created you with incomplete knowledge, who deliberately made you not to know everything, I don't think that God is going to be upset with you when you come back to him later and say, God, I don't know everything. He's going to say, yeah, that's how I created you. I created you with that, with that brevity of knowledge because I want you to come to me when you don't understand. When you reach the limit of your knowledge, I want you to turn to me. I think God is just like that. I think that when a small child is angry and confused and kicking and screaming on the floor, throwing a temper tantrum in Walmart, I think that a good father simply scoops that child up in his arms and he holds that child and he whispers his love to that child until that child slowly calms down and and breathes. And the anger starts to ebb away in the father's arms. That's just what a good father does. And your father is good. You still belong to him. He still holds your right hand. He still guides you in his counsel, leading you to glory. So bring him, you, all of you, 
In all your broken, painful, angry honesty, bring him to you. And in those moments when you're upset, when you don't understand, when you're angry with God, just go to God and say, say Lord, I'm, I'm angry. I'm upset. I don't understand. And just see how he answers that prayer. It's probably going to be the same way that a father holds his child when his child has a temper tantrum, right? And a good dad just hangs on and, and lets the anger ebb away in his presence, in his embrace, in his arms. So go to God. Bring him your bitter, torn-up heart. And it's probably going to look in your life a little bit like it looks like for Asaph in Psalm 73. Because that's his third conclusion. God is here. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail. My spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He's mine forever. Those who desert him will perish. For you destroy those who abandon you. But, but for me, it's good for me to be near to my God, I've made the sovereign Lord my shelter. And then I'm going to tell everyone about all the wonderful things that you do. See, there are things in this life that are not good. The prosperity of the wicked, that's not good. The psalmist and you and I are rightfully concerned over that idea that, that the wicked people somehow prosper. We are justified in our anger over injustice. That's not good. Becoming bitter in your own hearts, that's not good. Bitterness is the poison that you drink thinking that it's going to destroy your enemy. Bring your bitterness. Bring your torn up heart. Bring your bewildered brain. Bring it to God and let the perfect gardener uproot those weeds of bitterness. Don't desert God just because you don't understand him. Don't leave God just because you're hurting. Bring him your anxiety. Bring him your depression. Bring him your frustration. Bring him your confusion. Bring him you. All of you. Because the nearness of God, well, that's good. The nearness of God is, is good. The fact that the God of the universe is not immune to all the troubles here on earth, that's a good thing. He's watching and he's seeing and he cares and he's concerned. That's good. The reality that he does care, even in those moments when we don't feel like we can see him acting, that's good. The surety that his justice will prevail, that one day all wrongs will be righted, that is good. That one day all men and women will be held accountable for their actions before a judge and a holy God, a perfect judge, that is good. The truth that God forgives you again and again and again and again, that is good. The, the truest foundation of your life, the fact that God, your Father, loves you, that is good. Your Father has loved you since the foundation of the earth, that is good. He loves you even when you are angry with Him, that's good. He loves you even when you go herring off to some far country and spend all of His money on wine and women in song, that's good. His love for you pursues you and when you come to your senses, when you come back to him, when you decide that it's better to be a servant in your father's house than to be the richest man in a far off country, your father comes running up the road towards you like some sort of prodigal God and that is good. 
Your Father loves you. Your Father is good. Artist Ed Riojas paints a picture of Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them is proud and puffed up in his own self-importance. He prays a prayer that not even God listens to. I love how in this painting nobody's even looking at him. He's chosen a place of prominence at the top of the steps where everyone can see him and nobody's looking at him. The other man... He stands far off. He cannot even draw near. He's overcome with his own bitterness, his own torn up spirit. His health is failing. His spirit is growing weak. But this man is not the center of the picture. The most important part of this picture, you see that hand? Do you see it? Do you see the hand of Jesus reaching out to the penitent sinner? Do you see the hand of Jesus in your own life reaching out to you? Do you feel the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the love of your Savior? Can you sense the goodness of God in your own broken prayers? Who else do you have in heaven but God himself? And if you have God, what else do you need? What other thing on this earth really can satisfy the way that God can? And if you have God, what else do you need? May God alone be your strength in your life. May he be your portion Forever. Forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. You know what we go through. There is not one temptation that we face that you haven't already faced. And so you understand. 
thank you that you've promised that what's going on in this world, Lord, is only temporary. And that there will be a day where justice will prevail and where mercy will triumph over judgment, where your love will suffuse everything. And I pray until that day comes, Father, I pray that you would teach us how to strengthen our hearts, how to strengthen ourselves in the God who loves us, in the goodness of a God who loves us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My prayer is that you will have a great week. In Jesus' name, go in peace.